Hey listeners, welcome to episode 21 of Creme de la Crime podcast. On the list this week is the state of Massachusetts. According to worldpopulationreview.com, Massachusetts has 126 unsolved disappearances. Please keep in mind this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Massachusetts true crime. Before we get started with today's episode, it's been a little while since I've shared a podcast I'd love with you. So today, I want to share a trailer from a podcast I recently discovered and have really been loving. And that podcast is Coffee and Crime Podcast, hosted by Lisa. So check it out. Hi, lovely listeners. My name is Lisa Marie Imray, and I am the host of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast, where each week I sit down with a cup of coffee and talk about any kind of true crime story. So if you are interested in true crime, which I bet you are since you're here listening to this amazing podcast, or you like drinking coffee, then feel free to give Coffee and Crime a listen to. It is available on all major podcast platforms. You can also find Coffee and Crime on Facebook or Instagram, where the DMs are always ready for you to slide in with your thoughts and feelings, recommendations, or anything true crime related. So until then, be safe, be good, be better, and all that cheesy crap. And I will catch you guys over at Coffee and Crime. Once again, that is Lisa with Coffee and Crime Podcast. Don't forget to check out the show on any platform you listen to your favorite podcasts and head over to Instagram and follow the show at Coffee and Crime Podcast. The first case I want to share with you today is about a girl by the name of Lynn Burdick. And Lynn Burdick was born on February 4th, 1964 to parents Rufus and Dorothy Burdick. She was the youngest of four siblings and grew up in the family's ranch-style farmhouse in Florida, Massachusetts. Lynn lived in her own small bedroom located in the attic of the home, and even though the house was crowded, Lynn was described as a very happy and loving person. It was reported that Lynn's mother, father, aunt, uncle, two cousins, and her siblings were all living inside the family home. But Lynn was very close with her family and enjoyed spending most of her free time at the family home. She was known to be a quiet person, but her close friends said she was funny and a joy to be around once she felt comfortable around someone. Lynn was very involved in church and participated in charity events for muscular dystrophy and cerebral palsy. It was stated that these charities were really important to Lynn because her best friend had muscular dystrophy and one of her nephews had cerebral palsy. Lynn was genuinely a kind teenager and enjoyed helping other people. I mentioned that Lynn's family home was also a family farm. One of Lynn's older sisters named Faye said the farm was full of animals and a ton of produce. Quote, we used to grow our own produce, potatoes, potatoes, turnips, and corn. 
We had cows, pigs, and chickens. It was a lot of work, but a lot of fun, end quote. The farm was around 25 acres, and the four Burdick children helped take care of it while they were growing up. The family was very tight-knit, and even though the farm kept them all very busy, they regularly made time for family picnics together on the weekends. Lynn's niece, named Debbie, later stated, quote, She was a homebody and loved to be with her family. She pretty much loved doing anything school. She was very, very smart. She was supposed to be getting high honors when she graduated, end quote. At the time Lynn disappeared, she was 18 years old and a senior at McCann Technical Vocational High School. She was a fantastic student and dreamed of eventually going to college, but knew it wasn't realistic for her immediately after she graduated. Not only was the cost of college too expensive, but Lynn's mother had emphysema and it was stated that she was one of Dorothy's main caregivers. Debbie stated, quote, She'd just do anything for anybody. She used to babysit all of her nieces and nephews and even the neighborhood kids, end quote. She had a plan to stay home after graduating to continue taking care of her mother and save up money to eventually be able to go to college down the road. Lynn didn't drink, smoke, or do drugs. And on top of all of her other responsibilities, she also had a part-time job at the local shop her cousin Suzanne owned called the Barefoot Peddler. Florida, Massachusetts was a tiny town during this time with roughly 700 residents. Because of how small this town was, Crime was rare as a whole, and abductions and murders were basically unheard of. Debbie made a statement to Dateline saying, quote, They don't have any grocery stores or anything like that. Actually, the Barefoot Peddler was the only store up there, end quote. The store was located on the corner of Central Shaft Road and Route 2, and only about five minutes from the family home. According to Faye, this store was, quote, a tiny little store that sold beer and groceries. When she was working there, she had to have somebody there with her for a while because she was only 17 and couldn't sell beer or cigarettes, end quote. When Lynn finally turned 18 in February of 1982, she was able to work alone, and this made her able to pick up more hours than she could before. Even though this was a safe area, Suzanne didn't like the idea of a teenager working alone at night, and she would often stop by the store to check on Lynn. It was also common for one of Lynn's friends to hang out at the store with Lynn while she worked. On April 17, 1982, Lynn went shopping with her mom and later went to a small gathering at a local bar with her brother Brian and his wife. Her brother dropped her off at the store for her shift after this gathering. On this evening, one of Suzanne's young children was sick, so Suzanne stayed home to take care of her child. Lynn's best friend also had other plans that night and was out of town, so this was the first time Lynn was officially on her own at the store until closing. Even though Suzanne didn't stop by that night, she did call the store around 8 p.m. to check on Lynn. They talked for a few minutes, and Lynn said it had been a slow, rainy night. While they were still on the phone, Suzanne said she heard the jingling sound of the bell that indicated the front door had opened. Debbie stated, quote, Lynn was on the phone with Sue when the person came in. She said, I have to help this person with some stuff, end quote. She told Suzanne she would call her back once she closed at nine, and then she hung up the phone. 
This was the last time anyone in the family would ever speak to Lynn. There are two accounts of events regarding who called the store that night. One account stated that her mother called around 8.30 p.m., and another stated her brother Brian called the store to see if Lynn needed a ride home after the store closed. It's possible they both called the store, but I'm honestly not positive. The phone rang, but Lynn didn't answer. They didn't think anything of this at first because it was normal for Lynn to not answer the phone if she was in the middle of helping a customer. Quote, they thought she was busy. And then a short time after that, a local had gone into the store and saw that it was abandoned. He called my family to let them know that Lynn was not there. End quote. This customer had entered around 8.40 p.m. And you have to remember, with little local places like this, everyone knows who owns and works in this little store. And this man was a friend of the family and knew Lynn worked on Saturday nights. So this is why he called her family so quickly. Also remember, Lynn was a very responsible teenager, so everyone knew she wouldn't just leave the store unattended. The family immediately went to the store and called the police. A trooper with the Massachusetts State Police responded to the call and arrived at the store to examine the scene. There were no signs of a struggle inside the store, and the displays located right by the counter were undisturbed. The book she had been reading was still open on the counter along with her soda, but her high school jacket and her purse were both missing. The family noted there was $187 missing from the cash register, and this made detectives believe there had been a possible robbery or that Lynn had run off with the money herself. They quickly concluded Lynn being involved was not the case for many reasons. To start, Lynn didn't have a car or a driver's license. Her best friend was out of town at this time, and she did not have a boyfriend. Also, it was normal for cashiers and store owners to routinely place money underneath the counter so that the register would never have more than a couple hundred dollars in it. That money was not touched, and Lynn would have known about this money, but an intruder would not. Detectives were confident that Lynn had been abducted. She was not the type of teenager that would steal money from her family store and take off out of nowhere. They estimated that she had been abducted during a robbery, sometime shortly after when she had gotten off the phone with Suzanne and when her family members had called the store around 8.30 and received no answer. Florida, Massachusetts also was not the sort of town that people would randomly drive and wander through. This led investigators to believe that the abductor was very familiar with the area, maybe even a local. At this time, Lynn's sister Faye lived in Monroe Bridge, Massachusetts, which was located about an hour away from where the family lived. She didn't have a car to make the drive right away, but she did arrive a few days later. Faye did an interview and recalled what it was like when she got to her parents' house. Quote, My mother was a wreck. My father was a wreck. We searched everywhere. End quote. Police found out fairly quickly that on the same night Lynn disappeared, a woman that was a student at Williams College, which was only 13 miles from the barefoot peddler, reported that a man had tried to abduct her from campus. Debbie told Dateline, quote, The student broke away from the guy, took off, and called the police. End quote. This attempted abduction had taken place only 45 minutes to an hour before Lynn disappeared. 
The woman managed to escape as he was trying to force her into his vehicle, and she was able to give a description of him and his vehicle to the police. After investigators learned all this information, one of the officers remembered that he had seen a similar vehicle matching that description driving along Route 2. If this was the suspect, the direction he was headed would have taken him directly to the barefoot peddler. Unfortunately, this suspect and the vehicle have never been located to this day. The next day on Sunday, police, firefighters, and residents conducted a large search for Lynn. Over the next 10 days, hundreds of people helped in the searches that included mountainous terrain, dirt roads, abandoned sheds, ravines, creeks, and the wooded areas. To make it worse, rain and snow had covered the area with mud, making the searches even more difficult. Lynn's father, Rufus, took time off from his job to assist in the searches for his daughter. He refused to stop looking for her even after all the official searches were called off on April 27th. He was convinced Lynn had been abducted and was alive and being held somewhere against her will. The family's financial situation eventually forced him to return to work, but he always held on to the hope that Lynn was alive. Police conducted searches for about three weeks straight. The district attorney's office gave a statement saying, quote, Police and volunteers conducted a massive search for Burdick. Eventually, following her disappearance, the community joined together to offer a $2,500 reward for information, end quote. Her sister Faye also stated, quote, I know my brother went into a few abandoned camps on the mountain, but never came up with anything. They couldn't find any trace of her, you know, no tracks or anything, end quote. Lynn's case eventually went cold. Years went by, and even though police received a few tips here and there, no progress was ever made in finding Lynn. The last significant lead ever discovered in Lynn's case came in 1995. Rufus received an anonymous letter in the mail from someone claiming that Lynn had been abducted and killed by a man who lived in North Adams, but refused to give any more details about where she could be found. Lynn's family and the police made public pleas for the writer to get in touch with them, but they never ended up hearing from this person again. In August of 2021, Debbie raised money to cover the cost of billboards that went up about Lynn's disappearance in Berkshire County. A year later, in August of 2022, the DA's office and the Massachusetts State Police Berkshire Detective Unit released four New Age Progress photos of the suspect that is believed to have been involved in the attempted kidnapping of the other girl less than an hour before Lynn disappeared. The images show a white man, about 5'7", who would now be around 70 years old. District Attorney Andrea Harrington stated that she hopes the new images will be widely shared by the public and that someone with information about Lynn's disappearance will come forward. She also noted that, quote, the Massachusetts State Police Unresolved Cases Unit featured Lynn Burdick on a deck of cards distributed throughout the Massachusetts State Prison System in hopes that someone there would share information. End quote. Debbie made a statement in a Dateline interview that Lynn's father, quote, had articles, newspapers. He saved every single article about her. He never gave up. My grandma never gave up. End quote. 
Rufus and Dorothy kept Lynn's room the same as she left it and always kept the porch light on just in case she ever came home. Faye was quoted saying, Every time my dad went out, he was always looking. Their dying breath was to find her and bring her home. End quote. Dorothy died in 1990 and Rufus in 2012 with no answers about what happened to their daughter. As far as I could find, all of Lynn's siblings are alive and still living in the Florida, Massachusetts area. It was reported that Lynn's brother Brian and his family live in the same house that he grew up in with his sister. Lynn Burdick was last seen on April 17, 1982, working at the store called The Barefoot Peddler owned by her cousin Suzanne in Florida, Massachusetts when she was 18 years old. She is a Caucasian female with brown hair and blue eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5 foot 4 and weighed around 115 pounds. She was last seen wearing a McCann Vocational Technical High School class ring with a blue stone and possibly a high school jacket as well. Lynn wears eyeglasses and her purse was also missing. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Lynn Burdick, please contact the Massachusetts State Police at 508-820-2300. The second case for today's episode is about a boy by the name of Taj Narbonne. Taj Narbonne was born on June 18, 1971, to his mother, Annette. He never had any contact with his biological father, and it was reported that his father died in 2009. Taj was described as an intelligent, well-mannered, and soft-spoken child. At the time he disappeared, he was nine years old and a fourth grader at Fallbrook School, and was said to be really mature for his age. He regularly saw the school guidance counselor to talk about what was going on at home and in his personal life. At this time, Taj was living with his mother and his stepfather named Clarence Dean. They lived in an apartment in the 10th block of Naples Street in Leominster, Massachusetts, and Annette had married Clarence when Taj was seven years old. Taj had told one of his teachers and his best friend that he was being abused at home. Annette even later told authorities after Taj disappeared that he was terrified of Clarence and absolutely did not want to live with him. It was so bad, in fact, that Taj regularly lived apart from his mother, usually staying with his grandparents or adult friends of the family. Clarence was an African-American male and Taj was a Caucasian boy. At the time, Annette had an infant child with Clarence and was also pregnant with a second child. Taj's grandparents later told police that Clarence detested Taj, and they suggested that racial issues were the reason behind it. Clarence was extremely jealous of the love Annette had for Taj because Taj was not his son. Annette was also scared of Clarence and had been planning to leave him and take Taj and her infant child with her. She ended up deciding to stay a little longer because she was so close to giving birth to her third child. The week before Taj disappeared, he had come down with a cold and was staying with his grandparents while he recovered. When Annette called and wanted Taj to be sent back home, his grandfather stated, quote, 
I told him he was going home. He said, with Clarence there, no way, end quote. As his grandparents returned him to his home, they didn't know this would be the last time they would ever see Taj. Annette did an interview a few years down the road recalling the events of that day, and it truly made me feel a little sick to my stomach. She stated it was actually Clarence who had insisted it was time for Taj to come home from his grandparents that day. He even told Annette that he wanted to do the right thing and make things right between him and Taj. Quote, I have, of course, so much guilt and regret that I didn't stand up to him, but of course I knew what he was capable of. End quote. She stated Taj was anxious and paranoid that night anticipating Clarence coming home from work. Annette tried to reassure him and calm him down, stating that he would already be in bed by the time Clarence came home. His grandmother Eunice later said that Taj actually called her at one point that evening and asked her to come get him because he was scared, but she told him to try to go to sleep. This is the last time she ever spoke to Taj. Clarence got home around 11.30 p.m. that night and insisted that him and Annette have a beer together before bed. Keep in mind that Annette was literally a week away from giving birth at this time. They had one beard together and went to bed around midnight that night. She was later quoted saying, I wonder, as I think back on it, did he want me to be asleep? End quote. When Annette woke up at 1.30 a.m., she was in bed alone and got up to look for Clarence. She walked down the hallway to look in the living room when he suddenly jumped into the room from the screened-in porch area to try to scare her in a joking way. This caused her to jump back, knocking over the empty beer bottles from earlier that night. She told Clarence to go check on Taj and let him know everything was okay just in case the noise had woken him up or scared him. Annette went back to bed, and when she woke up in the morning, Taj was gone. To this day, Annette wonders whether Taj was still actually in his bedroom around 1.30 a.m. or not. There are conflicting articles about what was in his room when Annette initially went to wake him up. One account stated that the clothes she had laid out for him were still there, and another stated that the clothes were gone. Annette found a handwritten note from Taj that read, I'm going away because I don't want to live here anymore. I don't have to listen to anybody anymore. End quote. After searching the area outside, Annette called Eunice around 8 a.m. to tell her she couldn't find Taj anywhere. His slippers were missing from his room, but nothing else had been taken. It was initially believed that Taj had run away to get away from Clarence, but he was only nine years old. So for him to run away and never be seen or heard from again is very unlikely because he didn't have the resources at his age to make himself disappear. Taj's grandparents also never believed that he ran away because it was almost freezing cold and dark outside at the time he disappeared. They stated that Taj was terrified of the dark and also went missing without any socks or real shoes on his feet. The note that had been left laid the path for the investigation. Police interviewed Clarence briefly, but never went any further than that to look into him as a suspect. They continued to investigate his disappearance as a runaway situation, and a search of the area was conducted, ultimately finding nothing. I know some of the details of this story are really insane to try to comprehend, 
But please remember, this was 1981, and it was a completely different time. It's very clear to me that even though I wish Annette would have followed her gut and listened to the red flags, it's also important that we don't victim blame because Annette was also a victim. She was very scared of Clarence and also had three small children to think about, so I think it's very important that we all keep an open heart for Annette. Police procedures surrounding missing children were very different in 1981, and it took almost a week for Taj's disappearance to be publicized. His family took it upon themselves to put ads in several newspapers, as well as hire their own private investigator. Ultimately, nothing new was ever found. Annette later stated that she started to feel suspicious about Clarence being involved in Taj's disappearance in June of 1981. Clarence would apparently randomly talk about unrealistic plans he had to find Taj and also asked Annette to help him get his story straight just in case the police questioned him. In December of 1981, Clarence was charged and sentenced to six years in prison after he kidnapped his ex-wife and stabbed her in a car near the Leominster State Forest. Even though he was sentenced to six years, he ended up only serving two of those years on the charges of assault. Annette officially filed for divorce in 1983 and went into hiding with her children when Clarence was released from prison. The last updated report of Clarence Dean stated he was suffering from a mental illness and is now a permanent resident at the Bridgewater State Hospital. Eight years went by, and in June of 1989, police carried out a search of a barn on Pleasant Street in Leominster. This barn was located less than one mile from the family residence, and authorities were searching for his remains, but still found no trace of Taj. The case went cold for years, and the next update I could find came in 2006 when police brought in ATVs, cadaver dogs, and a dive team to search the wooded area located at the end of the street that ran parallel to the street Taj lived on. Eunice stated that her and her husband were notified by police a few days before the searches took place that they had received new information from a girl about Taj's disappearance. Quote, I didn't even ask questions. Getting my hopes up for what? I hate to use the word closure. Would it be nice to know what happened to him? Now think about it. What could I say? Even with an answer, my grandson will still be gone. End quote. Once again, no new evidence or trace of Taj was found in that search. Eunice later recalled what it was like driving to the scene where the police were searching for Taj all those years ago, stating that she just sat there. Quote, Now things have quieted down. This brings it back. I'm not complaining because it brings it back, but it hurts. End quote. Eunice still keeps a stuffed babar elephant in a basket as a dedication to Taj's memory. The toy comes from a character in a popular children's series that Taj loved. He had been given his first babar elephant when Annette married Clarence, but it later went missing. A second babar elephant was bought for him, and Eunice has kept it to this day. Quote, he's been sitting waiting, and he's going to sit there and wait some more. We always said he didn't take Babar with him, so I don't believe he ran away. End quote. Fast forward to 2011 and Taj's case is now in new hands. 
The investigating officer stated that it was extremely puzzling that Clarence didn't fall under more scrutiny after Taj disappeared. Quote, The investigation kind of got away from him, but everything points to him. End quote. The problem was all the original evidence against Clarence was circumstantial and the physical evidence police collected has since been discarded because it was ultimately irrelevant. Even though Clarence is not listed as an official suspect, he is still considered a suspicious person in the case. This officer couldn't discuss much of the information regarding the case in this interview because he said it could possibly compromise the investigation. He was able to reveal that he had learned many new things about Taj's disappearance when he reopened the case that was not originally reported during the initial investigation. He even went to try to re-interview Clarence at the state hospital, but stated he is often incoherent and considered unreliable. Police have a good idea of who was responsible for Taj's disappearance, but said the goal at this point is just to find him. Annette stated in 2011 that she is unsure about how she feels regarding the searches for Taj's remains. As a mother, of course she wants answers about what really happened all those years ago, but also stated the idea of finding his body is just so creepy. She still clings to the hope that Taj did run away and hopes he has been living happily somewhere for all of these years. Annette ended up remarrying and moving to New York and now goes by the name Annette Long. As of 2011, Taj's grandparents were both still alive and living in Leominster. Eunice was quoted saying, The thing is, it was rough. It still is. And I'll never forgive Clarence or myself for letting him go back there. End quote. In October of 1996, Walmart sponsored a billboard that profiled and shared Taj's case. For decades, Annette has been burdened with the questions about what happened to her son. She stated she was able to let go of some of her pain in the mid-1990s after she reflected on the special relationship that they had together. She had given birth to Taj when she was only 18, still a young person herself. She reminisced about Taj and stated that he was a gifted student and an amazing little guy. Quote, he was like my little friend as well as my son, end quote. Taj Narbonne was last seen asleep in his bedroom on March 31, 1981, in Leo Minster, Massachusetts, when he was nine years old. He is a Caucasian male with blonde hair and blue eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was four foot tall and weighed around 65 pounds. He was last seen wearing a faded blue denim jacket with faded yellow sleeves, a light blue and orange long sleeve sweatshirt or a yellow sweatshirt with a picture of Donald Duck on it and either moccasins or no shoes or socks. His case is classified as a non-family abduction. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Taj Narbonne, please contact the Leo Minster Police Department at 617-537-0741. That's all I have for this week's episode, but if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email at crimedelacrimepodcast7 at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show, as well as head to Instagram and follow me at crimedelacrimepod.
don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off.